Among several hundred husky dogs, which I have had occasion to watch during my trips north, I remember one particularly well. His name was Spot. Gray like a timber wolf with funny pale circles round his eyes, he was faster and stronger than any of the team. Although too young yet to be promoted to be leader, he showed greater intelligence than any of the other dogs. He made a point to be always on the best terms with his driver, and showed great friendliness in camp as soon as he was out of harness. He never shirked his work, and was exceedingly jealous of any dog who managed to slack in harness without being seen and punished by the driver. One day, when hauling as number two behind the leader, he noticed that the latter would slack his traces as soon as he reached the back of the preceding sleigh, traveling in the same direction on the same trail. Spot, raging at the idea that the rest of the team was still pulling while the leader, resting his head on the preceding sleigh, was loafing, would immediately seize the trace with his teeth and throw himself on the snow, obliging the leader by the weight of his dragging body to fall back. He would remain in that position until a gap of thirty feet at least had opened between the two teams. Then, knowing that the leader had to start pulling his own share again if he did not want to be noticed and punished by the driver, Spot would jump to his feet and proceed with his own work with great energy and triumphant howls of joy. At all times he was a great fighter and would often get wounded, even if he did succeed in thrashing his opponent. One day, I doctored his wounds with iodine. Ever after, as soon as he was bitten or cut, he would come up and beg for treatment. I often tried to fool him by applying plain warm water to his wounds. I never succeeded. He would remain whining until some kind of medicine, which he could smell and taste, was rubbed on the sore spot. Anything would do, Listerine, alcohol, even toothpaste. As soon as his nose and tongue satisfied him that he had been properly treated with something that he couldn't smell and lick without distaste, he would wag his bushy tail and saunter away quite satisfied. Anyone who knows Eskimos well and who has also traveled in the Far East cannot but notice that the rugged, stocky men of the Arctic have many characteristics of the Asiatics. Their talent of imitation is one of them. Their complete lack of sense of danger when facing a white man's invention that is absolutely new to them is another. Twenty years ago, I recall, a Belgian engineer on the Hankow Pekin Railway complained to me of the utter recklessness of the Chinese in the company's employ. The line had been running hardly a year then, and scores of Chinese were being trained to take the place of high-class European laborers, such as engine drivers. According to the harassed official, all the Chinese were willing workers, exceedingly adaptable and absolutely fearless. They learned the practical side of their job far quicker than a white man would, but they had no notion of what danger was so far as the engine they were entrusted with was concerned. They knew, for instance, that they could obtain a certain speed which they could judge by a certain instrument with an arrow, the figures of which they could not, of course, read. They also knew that they were not allowed to let the arrow go further on the dial than a given point. But at the beginning they could not see the difference between a straight railway track and a curved one. In consequence, they would never slow up at a sharp curve. 
When the engine happened to be running at 60 miles per hour, off the track she would go with disastrous results. If by any chance the Chinese engine driver escaped without injury, he had learned his lesson and would not make the same mistake twice. But a lot of them were killed. Furthermore, the engines were invariably smashed. It was very costly to the company. As the Belgian official said, an Asiatic can learn only through bitter personal experience. The same applies to Eskimos. Here is one of many examples. One year our steamer brought a gasoline launch to one of our trading posts in Hudson Bay. We wished to use her for towing the barges, full of cargo, ashore. The skipper chose an intelligent-looking Eskimo from the crowd and, in a couple of hours, had taught him how to run the engine. The husky had never in his life seen a gasoline launch before, but he tackled his new job with high glee and no signs of nervousness whatsoever. The first time he was alone in charge, he ran the engine beautifully. He towed a string of barges to the shore but, having no idea of speed, he slipped his toe too late. The result was that when he was going around at full speed and heading back for the steamer, the heavy barges, which had too much way on, crashed into the wharf, knocked it down, and threw fifty Eskimos or so into the icy water, happily without fatal results. Meanwhile our husky friend, who had seen the accident, but who did not have time to work out in his head the pros and cons of the question, was reaching the ship head-on at ten knots an hour. Heedless of our shouts of warning, he stopped his engine, then reversed her when he was exactly two feet from the steamer's side. There was an awful crash, a cloud of smoke, and our new gasoline launch disappeared to the bottom like a stone. The only thing that was left was a thoroughly frightened Eskimo floating aimlessly on the troubled waters, whom we fished out with the help of one of the winches. When the World War broke out in the center of civilization, news spread quickly until it got to the wilderness. After that it traveled more and more slowly, but in the end it reached the remotest parts of the earth. In the far north of Canada it took months and months for the news to filter through the barren lands. In a lonely outpost on Hudson Bay, the one white man who lived there heard of the war, for the first time, eight months later, in March, 1915, to be exact. It was only a rumor and for a long time he could not understand clearly what had happened. A tribe of Eskimos hunting south had met some coast Indians who had been trading, at Christmas, at Fort George in James Bay. The Crees had tried to explain to the Huskies what the missionaries and white traders had told them, but the peace-loving Eskimos could not realize what the word war meant. Furthermore, their knowledge of the Cree language was very confused. They told our man that there were a lot of dead people in the white man's land, far away over the sea, that the noise was terrible, and that the white men's igloos were all destroyed. They did not mention the words war, shell, gas, which the more civilized Indians knew from hearsay and had told to them. They just repeated what had struck their imagination. In other words, what they had understood. The trader pondered for months over that rumor. In the end, he came to the conclusion that there had been a great earthquake somewhere in Europe, like the one in California in 1906, and dismissed the matter from his mind. 
he never thought of war. It was in summer, when the supply ship reached his post, that he learned what had really happened. He left at once to join the French army, and was killed a year later at Verdun. A canoe, may she be a 16-foot cruiser, or a 22-foot freighter, is at all times a small craft, especially on a lake when the nearest shore happens to be a very long distance off. Men who live in the far north pass all their time on the water, as soon as the ice disappears in the spring. They are so accustomed to their cranky canoes that it never occurs to them to bother about what they should do if, by any chance, something unusual happens. But in case of emergency they think and act very quickly. I had an example of it a few years ago on Abitibi Lake. Two Indians were freighting a heavy load of hardware in a birch bark canoe. They had a head wind and the waves were pretty high. The man at the bow thought the canoe was packed too much by the stern and shouted over his shoulder to the steersman to shift some of the load forward. The latter, from his seat in the stern, seized a 25-pound bag of shot at his feet and threw it five feet or so in front of him towards the middle of the canoe. The bag landed in an empty space right at the bottom of the canoe. The craft was old and rotten. The bag of shot simply broke the ribs, tore a gaping hole in the birch bark, and disappeared straight down to the bottom of the lake. Instantly the water started pouring in. One mile from shore, a nasty sea running, and a leak larger than a man's head which would fill and sink any canoe in a few minutes. The steersman gave one yell, and then jumped like a huge frog, landing in a sitting position right in the middle of that hole. He stuck there, shivering, with water to his waist, until the bowman, realizing the danger and paddling madly for shore, succeeded at last in beaching the canoe high and dry.